Thank you so much, Brandon, for those songs. So this morning, um, like what was read in the scripture reading, we'll go a little bit further in 1 Samuel 14 um, than the scripture reading. Um, I was planning uh, for a while on doing the next lessons in the year-long series of Ephesians 5 after Cody and I finished our um, lessons that we were doing in 2 Peter chapter 1. But sometimes there are lessons that become almost like an emergency to teach on just because of how pressing they are um, on my mind and how helpful they are. And this is a lesson like that. Uh, I taught on 1 Samuel 14 with like a, it was either a Wednesday night invitation or a Sunday evening um, exhortation a few years ago. And uh, this, this event in scripture has meant more and more to me as time has gone on. It's helped me more and more as time has gone on. It's strengthened my faith more and more as time has gone on. And particularly, there's a statement in verse 6 that we'll latch on to after a while that just has particularly been an anthem of mine lately. And so we're going to look at 1 Samuel 14 this morning, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll get into Ephesians 5 and continue the series we were doing there. But the title of the lesson is The Power of God Through Faith. And that's really what I want to emphasize in this event and draw your attention to, is how God so powerfully worked to cultivate the most meaningful, the most rooted, the most long-term, uh, the most long-term growth in the nation of Israel through the event in 1 Samuel 14. I also love this event because it's easy to overlook. Um, this is Jonathan, as we saw in the scripture reading, uh, the son of King Saul, who acted in these events. And this is surrounding big things that were going on with Israel, big things going on with Saul as a king, big things going on with David. So it's easy for this event to kind of be eclipsed by all of those things that were happening around it. And uh, I just hope that this, this section can mean as much to you by the end of the lesson as it continues to mean to me. I think it's helpful to first just consider how discouraging Jonathan's environment was. Jonathan was not living in a good time in Israel's history. If you look at chapter 13, verse 6, Saul had won an initial victory in the beginning of his time as a king, but very quickly things began to collapse and become in many ways worse than they ever had been before. So in verse 6, it says, When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. So imagine again how discouraging that would be that people of God, who are meant to be a people of courage, who are meant to have strength from God to overcome their enemies, are hiding in holes in the ground because they've so lost their courage, they don't have hope to fight God's battles. And then if you look in the latter part of the chapter, at the very end, starting in verse 29, as Saul's leadership continuously begins to fail more and more, it says, Now no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. 
So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his hoe. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for, plow, for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to fix the hoes. So it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So just to put this in better perspective really quick, the Philistines were Canaanites. They should have been wiped out by Israel when they first came into the land of Israel. They had no right to even be in that land in the first place. And in verse 23, the Philistines had advanced very deep into Israelite territory and were building fortified garrisons in Israelite territory. So the Philistines not only got to a point where they were so intimidating that God's people were hiding in holes in the ground, but they were even charging Israelites a large sum of money to even sharpen their farming equipment. So there was no weapon in Israel except with Saul and his son Jonathan. They were completely dominated by the Philistines. Samson was the final judge of Israel before Samuel. So Samson did not live all too, that, all too long before these events. Samson was like a superhero, right? I mean, he literally caught 300 foxes and tied their tails together. So like, I don't know, he had like super speed or something. And then in another event, he pulled the gates of the city with their bars out of the ground, put them on his shoulders, and then walked up a mountain with them. So Samson, with all of his strength, fought against the Philistines in his lifetime. How much did ultimately... Samson changed Israel through all of that strength, all of those battles. Samson changed nothing. Nothing changed through Samson's strength. Or how about Saul, who was a warrior, a valiant man? Saul, even though he was very valiant, was not a man of faith like David would later be. And so even though Saul was a valiant man and could instigate people to follow him into battle initially. Ultimately, Saul, for all of his strength and military might, Saul changed nothing. And things were only getting worse and worse and more and more discouraging. And yet, it's in this situation, as discouraging as it is, that Jonathan decides to make an advance all by himself. Look at verse 1 again. Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who is carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. It's emphasized in verses 2 and 3 that Jonathan deliberately left behind people and things that Saul relied on for strength and courage. So like Saul had hundreds of men with him and Saul would not go into battle without the multitude of his people who are with him. Saul also treated the Ark of the Covenant as a military idol, right? So it specifically says the priests who were in Shiloh did not come with Jonathan. He did not tell them about the battle because Jonathan did not think that the Ark of the Covenant was some lucky token to win him military battles, right? So things that Saul would have put his trust in, Jonathan deliberately left those things behind and didn't take them with him. And then look at verses 4 through 10 now, and just, I really want to emphasize his position and his plan were incredibly foolish. 
4 through 10, between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp crag on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other, Seneh. The one crag rose on the north opposite Michmash and the other on the south opposite Gibba. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. They say to us, Wait until we come down to you. Then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be the sign to us. So there's some things here that I think are easy to gloss over. Jonathan put himself in verse 4 and 5 in a position so incredibly uh, foolish that on both sides of him were these legendary cliff sides that were so well known they actually were named. So on the north was this Craig Bozes and on the south this Craig Sine. And again, it's just, it's emphasized that these were cliff sides or like sharp crags where maybe the cliff would jet out and come out a little bit. The, the idea is Jonathan was in a position where retreat was impossible. There's just, if the Philistines came down against him, there was just no possibility he would be able to get away and retreat. Not only was retreat impossible, but getting up to the garrison was going to be incredibly difficult. We'll see that in just a moment, just how difficult it was. So his position tactically is really not smart if he wants to make an advance. He's actually put at incredible tactical disadvantage because of where he is. But then look at his plan in verse 8 through 10. So his plan is, what we're going to do is, we're going to reveal ourselves, right? So he's like going to stand out and somehow become visible to the garrison and remember, a garrison is a fortified location. This isn't just people who are just standing in a field. This is a fortified area that the Philistines intend to be able to defend. Jonathan is just going to stand out somehow and just wait to hear what they say. And you notice in verse 8, or rather verse 9, if the Philistines want to go down to Jonathan, then God has not delivered the Philistines into his hands. Do you remember what kind of warrior Jonathan was? What kind of weapon he specialized using? He was an archer. So you think about it, if the Philistines had to come down this very dangerous cliff to get to Jonathan, what could he do? He could just stand there, yeah, yeah, Cody's got it, just, you just shoot them one by one and it's like easy victory, right? But Jonathan's idea is, no, 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 no. If the Philistines want us to go up to them, God has delivered them into, into our hands. Imagine his armor bearer being like, I mean, whatever, man. <laughs> it really doesn't sound right, but I'll follow you. Because if, if Jonathan has to go up to them, again, we're going to see how difficult that's going to be. But this is a fortified area. And not only is it fortified, if he's revealed himself, they know for one that he's coming up and to prepare and for two, they know exactly where he's coming up to them. So they can literally just wait on the edge of the cliff 
either shoot at him with arrows or just take their swords and start stabbing him in the face when he starts coming up, right? So that's his brilliant idea. So not only is his position just about the worst position he could be in, his idea for how he's going to go against the Philistines is also the worst idea he could possibly have, right? But yet in the scripture reading, we saw how this plays out. By the way, do you see how brilliant the Philistine garrison was? Like the brilliance of where it was placed? By all logic, by all tactical senses, this should not have been possible for this garrison to be taken by the Israelites. Israelites had no weapons. The garrison was fortified. It's on a cliffside in a legendary location. This is a very secure location. Let's look at how they fall before Jonathan, though. Verses 11 through 14. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will tell you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer put some to death after him. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half a furrow and an acre of land. Do you see how confident the Philistines were? This is like a joke. You know, they're like, look at The Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they've dug for themselves. And then obviously they would be confident about, hey, come on up here. We've got something we want to tell you. And you notice... In verse 13, Jonathan climbed up helplessly on his hands and feet. And so I don't know what this looked like, but you imagine Jonathan is struggling to get up there, and somehow the the, the Philistines, I don't know, like he gets up and stands up, and they literally just freeze in place and like fall over. And I like the way Cody, reading out of the ESV, translated it that it's like they fall down and his armor bearer is just kind of like walking behind him, I don't know, just stabbing their bodies that are on the ground and finishing them off as they just walk through the garrison unharmed. Do you think this surprised Jonathan, how this turned out? Do you think he was amazed that I just can't believe this is happening? No, I think this happened exactly as Jonathan anticipated. You know what else is interesting about this is verse 13. Do you notice how small a portion of land this was? This was half an acre of land. An acre is already not too big an area to build a fortified area, but half an acre is a really tight area. The reason why that's significant is Jonathan could have very easily been swarmed by the Philistines around him. He killed 20 men, but if you look in verse 15... Look at how zealous God was, how passionate he was to support what Jonathan had done in verse 15. Let's read through verse 15 through 23. So this is what Jonathan did. 15 through 23 is now what God did through Jonathan. And we'll look more at what's on the board after reading this again. 15 through 23. And there was a trembling in the camp. And again, I like the ESV said there was a panic. There was a trembling in the camp in the field and among all the people, even the garrison of the raiders trembled and the earth quaked. 
Now Saul's watchmen and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went here and there. Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now the people, uh, number now and see who has gone from us. Now when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Then Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. While Saul talked to the priest, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle, and behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around in the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beth-Avon. So what I want to emphasize with this is God's zeal to work through what Jonathan did. It renewed and changed Israel forever, but it also changed the world forever as well. Before we talk more about that latter part, you notice in verse uh, 15, initially God causes the earth to quake, the Philistines panic, they begin retreating. Saul sees that the Philistine multitude is just melting away. He calls for the ark, which again, Saul's view of the ark was it was like some magical idol of victory. And so he quickly wants to bring that, but you know, it's, everything's happening so fast, we, just, we don't have time, let's go. He gets to the battle, and in verse 20, the Philistines, in their confusion, are literally killing each other and slaughtering one another. And in verse 21, apparently Israel had so lost their courage, many Israelites had become joined with the Philistines. And because of this, they turned and joined Israel again to fight this battle. Verse 22, Then the men of Israel who were hiding in their holes in the ground, even they came out to join the battle. And the Lord delivered Israel that day. You know how significant this event was? Because of this event, because of this event. The Israelites would be stationed on one side of a mountain, the Philistines stationed on the other side, and a man would stand against a giant. And Israel would never be the same. And David would later reign as a king, and the world would be changed forever. Who is David? Nothing without Jonathan. How did this happen? Where did this come from? Look back at verse 6 again and what Jonathan said. Somewhere in Jonathan's heart, somewhere in his mind, he heard God's word differently than anybody else did. You know, I'm sure everybody knew the stories of Israel's past, the victories that God had won for the nation. I'm sure everybody understood that Israel came out of Egypt by great power from God. 
I'm sure everybody knew about the, the, the conquests of the Canaanites, how the walls of Jericho fell without even a battle or a sword being lifted. But something in Jonathan understood those weren't just stories for the past. That was God teaching about the present and what God is seeking to do for his people in the present. Look back at verse 1, even before that. It's there when John, Jonathan, in the circumstance when everything seems to be falling apart all around him, he decides, come, let's cross over to the garrison of the Philistines that is on the other side. I just want to show you one connection before we get into some reflections and applications. Turn to Matthew 27. So this victory that God won, obviously you can see how zealous God was because of the ripple effect. That God caused this panic and confusion. Israelites came out of the holes that they were hiding in. And there was an earthquake that shook the people and caused this panic. Look at Matthew 27. In a greater way, there was one man who stood his ground and made an an advance against God's enemy. And he won the greatest victory that anybody had ever won before. Matthew 27, verse 52, after Jesus died on the cross, it says, The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming up out of the tombs, the holes of the ground... After his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. You know, I don't think it's an accident that what God did because of Jonathan's stand of faith that there was an earthquake and people came out of the ground and there was a ripple effect that changed the world forever. It's no accident that those events are related in, they were related to a connection of events that happened when another man, in a greater way, stood his ground and won a greater victory. And because of the ripple effect of that victory, the world would change forever. So I want to spend the last part of the lesson just making some reflections and applications from these events that I think are strengthening and encouraging. How does God change the world? How does he cultivate meaningful, rooted growth in a church? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 31. And I hope that this gives light to why this passage not just the events themselves, but the lessons that we gain from the events are so emboldening. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. How does God cultivate meaningful, long-term, rooted growth in a local church? 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolishness the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek for wisdom, search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. How does God change the world? How does he cultivate meaningful, rooted, long-term growth in a local church? Saul's methods were worldly. They made sense to a worldly-minded person. The people wanted a king like the nations all around them, and that's exactly what they got. They got a king who operated by confidence in his own strength, who operated in confidence of the multitude of people who were with him. He operated in the confidence of treating God's ark like it was some idol like the other nations. Jonathan put no trust in his bow, Jonathan put no trust in a multitude of people. He put his confidence in a plan so foolish it seemed absolutely doomed to fail. God uses people the world throws away like garbage through methods that the world sees as weak, ineffective, and foolish. This is the cross of our Lord. For this church to grow, what we need is to follow God's methods. And God's methods contradict our wisdom. They may contradict what we seem to think would be impressive or effective. This is why it's so important to follow sound doctrine. Because there's no power in the noise of people's opinions or traditions It doesn't matter the kind of noise that churches and a community may make. Only those who are following God's word and trusting in the power of God's wisdom, even when it may make no sense to us, that's where God's power truly is. That's where meaningful, true, rooted growth is. But truth is not just information and facts, right? Truth has a character. And that's what Jesus proved when he came into the world. The law of Moses wasn't just to be informational things like a dictionary to study. It was to make people zealous for godliness and righteousness, just as Jesus died on the cross standing alone when nobody understood what was going on. God's word when lived out with zeal, God produces the fruits of righteousness from that. We need to trust God's word, the methods of God's word. The Corinthians at this point when Paul wrote this letter, were becoming worldly-minded, and they were collapsing foundationally. 
And God was trying to bring them back through this letter to understand that God's wisdom that produces growth is not like the world and its methods. Number two, and this is very important, Jonathan was motivated, not discouraged, by the condition of the nation in his time. You imagine how easily Jonathan could have been completely discouraged. Just before the passage we read at the end of chapter 13, where the Israelites had to get their farming equipment sharpened by the Philistines, Saul was publicly denounced by Samuel and told, your kingdom will not endure, God is going to rip it away from you, and he is looking for a man after his own heart that he's going to give the kingdom to. Israelites all around him were losing their courage, their weapons were being taken away, the Philistines were advancing on Israelite territory, his own father was not living by faith or inspiring the nation, and yet Jonathan was not discouraged, he was motivated to act because of the condition of the nation in his time. So the key question is, what is your attitude about the church here, right? And here's what I mean by that. It's easy to think, I wish we had elders. I wish we had more people, more workers. I'd be more motivated if maybe there was more zeal, more maturity, more knowledge, more availability, more involvement. You know, I'd be more motivated if this, this, and that, or if we were more like a church that I visited one time where, you know, there's the passion or the number of people or the things that they're doing are so encouraging. For one, we need to be extremely careful about comparing ourselves to other churches, right? I think we understand the principle we need to be careful about comparing ourselves individually with others. We also need to be careful about comparing this congregation to others, right? This congregation is where it is right now. And Jonathan didn't get lost thinking, oh, I wish it was like the days when the people came into Canaan Oh, I just hate how things are right now. It's so discouraging. You know, it's like we're losing our courage and where are the great wonders that God did in the time of Joshua and the Israelites with them and the great victories that were won? Jonathan just dealt with the situation as it was, as discouraging as it was, as difficult as it was, and God worked through him to change the nation completely. We are not working to restore this church to some condition it ever was in the past. We're not trying to get to a place where we can imitate something another church is doing. We are trying to build the faith of the people who are here right now. We are dealing with the situation that the church is in right now. We are working to fulfill what we can do with the individuals who are here right now, with the maturity they have right now, the knowledge they have right now, and the zeal they have right now. The thoughts of comparing or thinking about wishing things were different and becoming demotivated by that, those are not thoughts that are rooted in faith. It would be very encouraging if this church had elders, sound elders who are shepherding and leading people. It would be really encouraging if we were able to have frequent meetings and make decisions and You know, things were like working cogs in a machine where everything was just perfectly happening. But we need to deal with the condition the church is in right now and deal with that in faith and be motivated by that and not be demotivated by that. To me, it's always heartbreaking 
when somebody talks in a way to despise the situation that this church is in because of a situation is another, that another church is in. That should be heartbreaking. This church is as valuable as any congregation in the world ever was. This congregation and where it is right now and what God is intending to do with this congregation is as valuable and as important as the biggest, most sound congregation you've ever visited or heard about. A congregation with 20 elders who are leading the church in a sound way, this church is as valuable as that. And finally, thirdly, God is not restrained by the many or by the few. This has been an anthem in my prayers lately and is really the reason why this lesson has not left my mind. God is not restrained to save by the many or by the few. Jonathan didn't wait for others. His motivation to serve the Lord didn't depend on the zeal of his father or the spiritual success of his father. His zeal to serve the Lord wasn't dependent on circumstances around him being encouraged. You know, what can happen a lot of times is in a congregation, there may be many who are only as zealous as everyone else is. Or even they're only being carried along, maybe, by the zeal of everybody else. And if the congregation becomes less zealous, they become less zealous. If the congregation becomes less zealous to initiate interactions, they withdraw even more. Again, that's not the response of faith, right? Jonathan took initiative because he understood the motivation is in the Lord. The motivation is from his promises. The motivation is not in the many or the few. The motivation is God can use me to do things right now to change things forever. And you know what's interesting about what Jonathan did? You know, Jonathan never brought up what he did in chapter 14. So Saul, his father, ends up coming in, making a foolish oath. They chase the Philistines away. It's just, it's a total disaster. He makes an oath where Jonathan is actually about to be put to death for the oath that he makes and binds the Israelites to. And the people free Jonathan, but he never brings up that he initiated the battle. It's just far into the background. Jonathan never brings it up. He never takes credit for it. And the other interesting thing, Jonathan never saw the true fruit of God's power born out in his lifetime. Do you remember how Jonathan died? Saul, his father, in his climactic act of utter foolishness, despite a multitude of warnings by God, went headlong into a battle against the Philistines where he was told directly by God, you are going to die. Your children are going to die with you in this battle. And he still went into battle with his children and Jonathan died there with him. And it was after his death that David would reign as king and unify the nation together. When God saves by individuals, when God works through individuals, it's a process that may take a very long time. Can this church have elders? Can this church have deacons? The reality is that's something that even in the best kind of circumstances will take a very long time. But how does something like that happen in a church like this? 
It's because of individuals who take initiative with faith like Jonathan's. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Um, note chapter 1, verse 18 through 23, but we're just going to look at chapter 3, 20 and 21. Ephesians chapter 3, 20 and 21. Ephesians chapter 3, 20 and 21. The point of this is we see God's zeal very vividly in the story that we read, right? The events that transpired. I think it's important to understand God is more powerfully zealous to support your faith, my faith, our faith. Look at Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Can God meet the expectations of his promises in the word? He's able to do not just what we ask or think. He's not just able to do beyond what we ask or think. He's not just able to do abundantly and beyond all that we ask or think. He is able to do far more abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. Can God cultivate long-term, meaningful growth in this church? Only when we submit to his methods and humble faith. Only when individuals are not being discouraged by time, by weariness that comes from laboring patiently, by encouraging others even when it doesn't seem to produce big, bombastic, immediate results, but just through the quietness of serving God with zeal because of his promises and trusting that God is able to do what he says he can do the way he says he can do it. And then it's not up to me to determine how it can happen. How is God going to cultivate an eldership here one day? Frankly, I'm not sure I'm aware of all the pieces that God is going to put in place for that. Can people move into the area? Think about maybe Jason one day working as an elder as he grows older. Or others in the church, even Paul Kelsey becoming an elder one day. You know, so there's ways that God can cultivate these things, but... People can be converted from the community and become Christians and become zealous and raise families where they become qualified. Listen, the point I'm trying to make, God is able to do what he says. And if we trust his promises, it's not up to us to determine, well, this seems like an obstacle. I just don't see how it's possible because of this, this, and this. God can do what he promises. And it's up to us then to trust that he is able to do far more abundantly beyond anything that we ask, think, or can imagine according to the power that works in the church so that Christ can be glorified in all generations forever and ever. Amen. One last point is this also relates individually. The big thing that's been motivating me is thinking about this congregationally, but can God make you pure when you feel like you cannot become pure? Can God help you become bold if you're not very bold? Can God help you have self-control when you feel like you can't become self-controlled? Can you become more loving and hospitable even if you don't understand how and you don't feel like you can? God is able to do what he says. We can trust him. He's proven it. I commend all these things to you. And if there's anybody here 
who needs prayers uh, of the saints or to confess something that we can help you in and, and, and strengthen you in, God has given us one another to empower our bold devotion to him. So if there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with God, please bring it forward while we stand and sing the invitation.